Hello everybody and welcome back to episode 5 of Wake Up Call. I honestly can't believe it's already been 5 episodes, this time has passed really really fast. Uh, today on The Alarm we're going to be talking about misinformation. This is an issue that people from every part of the political spectrum are going to find them complaining about. Right-wingers talking about left-wing misinformation on election fraud and how there actually was election fraud in the 2020 election. And left-wingers saying the same thing about people on the right. It seems like everyone in our society thinks that misinformation is a problem, which perhaps is a little bit ironic, considering the reason most people think that is based on misinformation in and of itself. To discuss, we're joined by Paul Giles, uh, a young conservative political staffer and university student, to discuss the topic of misinformation and maybe offer a conservative perspective different from mine and Milda's. So, Milda, when you think misinformation, what do you think of? Yeah, this is a great question. I did a research on this uh, not so while ago on media bias because I think that the idea that we have these big broadcasters representing a certain political party and kind of um, adhering to their ideology and to their interests is what usually makes misinformation on all of those clickbaity sort of articles and all of that. So I did some research on this and I wanted to tell you guys about it. Maybe you'll find out something new. I do want to say that like I do think that some polarization in society is normal to an extent, but I feel like at <laughs> some of these broadcasters really just make the situation so much worse and can spread such misinformation that then leads to like hate crimes and actual discrimination, which is horrible. So to start off, let me just give you like two headlines of the same incident reported by two different news sources. For example, the first one says, why a short withdrawal from Syria is the right move. Okay, the right move. Meanwhile, the other one reports the US withdrawal from Syria, right move or wrong decision. You see how even the headline gives already some kind of hint to the viewer? So like, it's interesting for me, which one would you rather click on? Because the first headline made by Fox News, I know, surprise, surprise, basically tells the viewer how to think before he even opens the article. If you're just scrolling, you, you know, you might not think that much about it, but you still see Syria, withdrawal, right, move and you see nothing else, and it still gives you some kind of message in your head that you then talk about. I think that we're just getting a massive, like, like uh, thinning of the line between opinion journalism and, like, actual journalism. Mm. Back in the day, it was, it was very clear, you know, who was an opinion journalist writing, okay, this is my opinion, these are the facts that I have, this is my analysis, this is my take on it. You know, you have columnists, and then you had reporters. But like in that Fox News article, that was published under the news section. Like, these aren't people saying, like, look, this is just my take on it. I offer my perspective, and which is what I think you and I do. I think we're both very, um, not to toot our own horn here, but we're very transparent about the way that we both see the world. Me and Milda both see the world differently, but I think I'm very transparent about that. I have my own biases, but when I'm reporting facts, I'm reporting things that I believe are true. I'm not necessarily saying things that I think may be true. And I think that that line blurring also contributes a lot to the to the increased polarization, especially within the media landscape. 
Yeah, exactly. This is what me and my friends were talking about the other day, because like people go to read news to get short and true information. Uh, they want to get facts and then they come and it's like a marketplace of opinions and you leave more confused than you entered the marketplace. So it's kind of bad. But then also you have to understand how like since all of what we get, the whole all of news that we get right now is usually on the Internet. Right. And since they're tracking us with algorithms and stuff, it's really, really important what you read, because if you engage with these fake news, you will get more fake news on your timeline as time goes. So also research has done that when more conservative people in the United States type climate change on Google, they ultimately get these kind of suggestions for conspiracy theories such as is climate change fake? And also like on TikTok, if you follow, if you engage with posts criticizing misogynist Andrew Tate, fanboys of him will come after you and attack you and all of that. Very relevant to, to today, right? <laughs> and of course, this is all bad because then we get polarized, we get uh, partisan and we kind of get blinded to other opinions that don't coincide with our own and we kind of seek that confirmation bias all every single day right but I wanted to talk to talk about like why more why news companies are this way and of course this is more like US centric but I think this can apply to many other states as well uh, or sort of also relate to how in other states the media is owned by national governments. So for example, in, in the United States, a lot of media companies, the big media companies are owned by for-profit corporations that like by law, you know, are obligated to put the profits of their investors ahead of all other considerations. And this is where it gets tricky because that is why, for example, ABC stonewalled the suspected pedophiles Jeffrey Epstein story for three years, right? And the journalist who made a story even found some dirt on Clinton, the former president, who was very related to Jeffrey Epstein and stuff. But her employers basically told her that, look, no one cares. Uh, but in reality, of course, they were just kind of covering for their political allies that they needed to cover for. And the bad thing is that, you know, people do really pick who to vote for based on these kind of news if they engage with them for a long time. Uh, some research shows that, for example, in 1996 and the year 2000, the towns, the kind of areas that did show Fox News very actively, Republicans gained 0.7 points in those towns, concluding that basically Fox News convinced 3 to 28 percent of its viewers to vote for Republicans. Yeah, I think that's 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 just incredible. And I mean, when you when you look at all this dirty dirty business that goes on in in, in for profit media, it's it's no wonder why people are turning away from these quote unquote established reliable sources like like uh, CNN and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal because they're they've been engaging in this sort of clickbaity style of journalism that's only encouraged. Let me let me let me just make a, a point here before I, before I continue that thought. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that companies are not motivated by anything other than profit. Like you said, Milda, that is their only motivation, right? 
CNN is not liberal and anti-Trump because it wants to be or because its corporate bosses are anti-Trump or, or, you know, big liberals. They're probably not. The reason it is that way is because they know that's what gets hardcore people to watch their coverage. If you look at CNN before Donald Trump entered politics, they offered, you know, liberal-tinged journalism. But the second that Donald Trump even appeared on the map, the network became Trump, 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 24-7. And, and the thing is, I'm not saying, look, obviously covering the president is important when he does bad things, when he says offensive things. Of course that's important. But the amount of attention that they pay a single tweet, okay, giving a 20-minute segment on a single tweet, whereas there's a five-minute throwaway segment about the hundreds of thousands of Americans that are dying of opioid overdoses, people that are addicted to opioids, and the big pharma companies that cause this crisis. It's ridiculous, and obviously those big pharma companies are their sponsors. So honestly, I don't blame people shifting away from these traditional media sources because they see how corrupt they are to their core. Um, and I think that alternative media has its pros and cons. I think that, yeah, it's great when you see, you know, young independent journalists moving away from the sort of uh, corporate old school style of journalism and starting their own sub stacks, starting their own podcasts, starting their own YouTube channels and, and things like that. Um, and it's, it's, it's great to see that because you get a lot of journalism without these vested corporate interests being intertwined within them. But the cons of that is that they are far less regulated and because the internet is like, you know, this wide open space where anyone can say whatever they want, people that are turning away from CNN or Fox because, you know, they're tired of the, the, the garbage may just be turning into something that's way, way, way worse, like Alex Jones or um, things like that. So it's it's really a tricky thing, and especially the rise of that, like you mentioned earlier, Milda, the, the social media algorithms tracking what you like. It's very hard to get away from your own political biases. Yeah, and that's, that's uh, why I even... I absolutely hate PragerU and what they post and like far right content, but I follow them on Instagram because I do follow yeah. a lot of left wing media and I just, I don't know, I like seeing what they're talking about. You know, I like seeing the arguments they use, so I would better know how to refute them. But what you were also talking about, about like um, alternative media and stuff, I think this is also the age old question about like, who should fund media then so it's like the most subjective and whatever. So I also wanted to talk about what can be done to make media a better place. And there's, of course, many things. They're all very nuanced, but I can mention a few. So firstly, of course, the media should be, in my opinion, or could be at least independent of the government or like any other corporations which might influence them, like tech giants and other big companies. For example, BBC's all senior executives are political appointees, and it's like major source of funding. Its license fee and constitution are both routinely set by governments. So obviously this influences their reporting. And it's the same thing in Canada as well. We have the CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is not quite under the direct supervision of whoever's leading the country. 
but it provokes interesting conversations like, for example, the leader of the Conservative Party is pledging to defund the CBC and get rid of the CBC. How does the CBC cover that objectively, given that one of the political leaders is threatening their very existence? I think, it, to me, it's one of those tricky spaces that illustrate exactly why government should not be involved um, in media. Yeah, for sure. And I think that if we do find some sort of source of news that we actually enjoy, uh, that is more independent in our eyes, for example, I don't think we should shy away from paying a few dollars and supporting those people because we pay for our Netflix every month. We pay for our Spotify's. Uh, we have to understand that good, good news is also not free. And by actively supporting the, the providers of those news, I think we would just get better information after all. Secondly, of course, very easily and very um, understandably, we need to educate people like on any other issue that echo chambers exist, that we need to be very, very aware of the news that we read and that we share with other people as well, because it has a huge effect on our lives. In Scandinavia, for example, in some schools, they even have a class on like media reading and how to differentiate uh, between news articles and critically think what is true and what is false. That's also something that we could learn from. Um, and then thirdly, of course, a possible issue, something that can be done and is already being done is government regulations. For example, news outlets can be penalized for their unethical work, spreading misinformation or spreading false news, which would, of course, incentivize them to not do that anymore. Yeah, what people always say is that back in the day, you know, we used to disagree based on a common set of facts rather than disagree on what the facts are. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm only 19 years old. But what I can say is that's the way that things ought to be. I wish that we lived in a world where we had a common understanding of what the reality of the world was. And we were able to have educated conversations based on those same realities. What it feels like right now is that people are living in entirely different worlds where entirely different parallel truths are happening. It's this sort of almost Orwellian commentary on, on what truth is. Is truth something that's real or is it whatever you want it to be? Is it whatever you experience? And I think it's, I think it's something that we should all be concerned of. People are saying that we live in a post-truth world, but that doesn't make sense because there is such thing as the truth. Things happened or they didn't happen. There's no gray area when it comes to actual facts. And what we're hoping to do um, from this discussion and on this podcast in general is illustrate the value of the truth, but also demonstrate that despite us living in the same reality, we have different perspectives in the way that we see the world. All right, we have on the show with us today, Paul Giles. He is an up and coming political staffer running in conservative circles, both provincially and federally. He's also a political science student at the University of Ottawa. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Paul. Uh, the first question that we had um, for you was basically, where do you get your news? Um, yeah, so I get most of my news from social media. Um, when Obviously, there's buzzing when something happens. Um, the, the sort of news accounts I follow are more independent and not mainstream. Um, so like Roka News, Ride the News, uh, Ground News. 
um, independent news networks that really focus on draining the bias out of uh, the information that we get on a day-to-day basis, or in the case of Graham News, sort of displaying the bias and shining a light on it. Um, and then once I find like what's going on from sort of an independent source, um, I really love going to Ground News so I can see what the left is saying and what the right is saying. Um, but oftentimes I just sort of throw out what the left is saying because I don't value their point of view and I just <laughs> go with the right wing headline anyway. So even though uh, even though we try to to get rid of the bias there, I just sort of it, I just sort of stick to my uh, my side anyway. I think it's nice that you choose uh, independent outlets. Uh, we talked in an earlier segment um, in a, when we were previously recording uh, the show about how corporate media and state-sponsored media are just perverse incentives galore. And and both Milda and I, we don't use the same sources as you, but we also look to independent sources as a means for you know, find getting to the getting to the bottom of it. Um, my question for you, uh, the second question is what do you think is driving this recent rise in misinformation? We've just seen it everywhere on the internet. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's has to do with polarization. The left and the right are just, they're, it's like going so far and it's like a, a steep hill on both sides. And, and it, a hill is a good example because the center is shrinking the more the sides go down. And, Part of that polarization is um, more fringe and extreme ideologies. And so there's a need to sort of bend the fabric of reality a little bit so that your ideas sort of make sense in in a world. Because you, in order for sort of polarizing opinions to succeed and far right and far left sort of ideologies to work, it, they don't work in the real world, and so you have they're they're because they're so far away from the center. They're trying to change the world, and so that's how we get misinformation and disinformation. Um, for example, in the United States, um, it's all the elections are fraudulent. If you're a Republican, there's not one election that the Republicans lost that was fair and square. Um, but as soon as the Republicans win, everything's all on the up and up. And if you're in the Democrat Party. There's no, there's no anything ever. There's no irregular, there's no such thing as voter fraud. We don't even need voter fraud laws anymore. There's no problem ever. And those are two opposing realities, but the truth is always in the middle of that. And so because everyone's always sticking to their sides and sticking to their point of view, they're, they're essentially lying and trying to alter the facts so that their point of view makes more sense. Okay, and then I wanted to kind of uh, stick to the point that you mentioned earlier. You said that you do read news from like both the left and the right, but you try to stick to the right just because you like it more. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I think we can all relate. We all love getting that confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. But, you know, don't you think that's an issue? Don't you think that maybe more big news broadcasters that are ideologically driven to one side, let's say the right, should include more leftist perspectives maybe to not indoctrinate people as much i i think that's that's an interesting point um i i just don't see happening in the current um 
current sort of political attitudes and and atmosphere um it's extremely hostile and i don't i don't think that um bringing in um sort of far left opinions on a far right station helps anything i think we need to to go right to the center and sort of take out sort of the right and left so i didn't necessarily say i stick with the right. So a great source is Graham News, right? So they'll have um, a left-wing sort of headlines and a bunch of left-wing headlines, center headlines, and right-wing headlines. I do ignore the left because I, I, I think there's a lot of nonsense that they throw into their headlines and their articles. I look to the center for what really happened, and then I look to the right to see what like-minded individuals are saying about that specific thing that happened. Okay, so speaking of, 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 of facts and, and truth, um, the reason actually you came on the show is because you and I had a little argument in Instagram DMs about something that you had reposted, um, which was basically a bunch of prominent uh, American conservatives um, who were, in my opinion, jumping to conclusions and bending over backwards to defend President Trump, who recently um, um, had a search warrant executed against him. The reason I took issue with that post is because it it, it determined um, a conclusion before all the facts were there. We didn't have the search warrant. Um, very recently, late last night, uh, the Washington Post actually made a report because they claimed that they have some leak that the, that the raid was related to nuclear documents. Yet, it seemed like all the commentators, both from the mainstream media, like Fox, uh, from corporate media, and from independent media, like Alex Jones. I don't believe he was included in the clip. Um, but all the way from, from you know, Fox to the Daily Wire to mainstream re re Republicans were basically jumping to the conclusion that they're going after Trump because they're going after you. Um, and Trump is sort of this innocent guy that's getting caught up in all this deep state corruption. My question for you is, how do you how do you justify reposting things like that that don't have um that that don't have the facts necessarily behind them that are that are largely speculative? Well, I do think that this is a, a serious sort of issue, right? Like let's 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 be real here. It, a president's home was invaded by law enforcement, and we don't know anything. And it's not just Republicans that are upset about this and are asking questions and are incredibly suspicious. Um, it's the de former Democratic governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. He said, we need an explanation right now. This is suspect, right? You can, you can, I personally waited before, and I think I, I tweeted um, that I'm, I'm not sure what's going on. If there's a legitimate investigation, then it's obviously okay. But a, a nighttime sort of raid, like like it's in the movies of a presidential of a former president's home, is something that's odd and sketchy, and um, it's definitely concerning when you hear. I don't agree with Andrew Cuomo on anything, but when he is also concerned, that that tells me that something may have seriously gone wrong here, and I I I think that we should we should not just uh, be looking at this with sort of a laissez-faire attitude. I think we need to we need to go hard and we need to find out exactly what happened, why it was done in this sort of 
bullish manner. And I do think that we should be concerned because um, the DOJ and the the legal systems in both Canada and the United States are no longer as independent as as we um, as we would hope they are, as they're supposed to be by law. Um, Trump Trump did it the same. Trump is also guilty of 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 using the law as as a hammer to do whatever he wants, and that's not okay. Um, but it's continuing under Biden, and so the legal system is something that's sacred, and it's being it's being used and manipulated by our leaders in a harmful way. And so I think anytime something like that happens, we should be extremely upset and extremely suspicious, and we should be asking a lot of questions. I mean, I don't disagree fundamentally with anything that you said there. I think that, of course, when, you know, the 45th president gets his house raided, like you said, in the middle of the night with this, you know, a whole bunch of SWAT team coming in, that's obviously something that, you know, where we should all have questions as to why it happened. And if they didn't, have legitimate reason for that, that is something that seriously needs to be investigated for, you know, the, its political motives and things like that. But the steps taken to getting to that point are the FBI needs to suspect that there's something in, they need to apply for a warrant, a federal court judge needs to grant the warrant. And I don't think a federal court judge is going to be granting those warrants unless they're 99.9% .9 sure that those documents are in Trump's house. And what it seemed like is that after the search warrant, we saw agents taking things out of Trump's residence. So, I mean, which indicates that maybe there is something there. Um, I think I think my point is is this: it's not that we should not be suspicious, but that we should not jump to conclusions. Um, but moving on from from that topic, um, I want to ask what concerns you the most about the current media landscape and how it impacts the way that we um, talk to each other and the way that we, you know, frame politics. Mm -hmm. um, I think the media is extremely, or sorry, mainstream media is extremely harmful. I think, for example, in Canada, we have the CBC, which is state-funded media. I think that needs to be defunded and gotten rid of immediately. The state has no has no place in the in the free press. They should not fund it. They should not have anything to do with it. It needs to be independent. And so it's extremely concerning that in Canada we have a state-funded media. Um, and the only other huge source we have that's sort of Canada specific would be CTV. Um, and and even then that so we have one one news channel that's good. And I, I do feel like CTV is extremely trustworthy, but we need to we need to where it's bad is not so much in Canada, other than the fact that we have state funded media where it's bad is in the United States, where um, if you go to flip between CNN and Fox News, it's two different worlds. It's two different realities. Um, they're, they're, they are the problem. They are they are misleading and lying to the people and it's causing a strict divide. You cannot get to the center if you do not live in the same world. It's it's really, really, really tragic what what we're seeing. And it's 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 not with good intentions. It's malicious. They know what they're doing. 
they they are there is bias in the stories they choose to show there is bias in how they present the stories there is bias in at what time do they release these stories there is an agenda on the right and on the left and the agenda should be um providing news and knowledge um to the people but the agenda is trying to get the people they like and they agree with um into office and trying to destroy the lives of people that they disagree with so from what we gathered from your opinion today, we think you support independent media, right? So mm-hmm. what I wanted to ask you is still any news broadcaster needs to get funding in order to stay alive, right? And many of them uh, now get funding through the state or through lobbyists. So we don't like that. Other more independent news sources get uh, funding from like advertisements and stuff. But if we we do want to have this change in the media landscape, would you yourself, for example, pay like $10 a month for getting a, an independent media subscription? Do you think that can be normalized in the future for people? Um, I, I personally would, but I don't think I don't think that people are there right now, especially with um, the infl- inflationary crisis that's happening in both Canada and the United States. I don't think that anyone is in any economic situation to take on anything like that. Um, although hopefully at some point that would be very much ideal. I think the the least evil option here is advertisements by corporations. Um, although that that is a problem, it's better than having um, funding through political lobbyists who everyone has an agenda and they're answering people. It's better to, to give it to people who don't care about politics. Um, well, obviously, corporations have interest in politics, but they care about first and foremost making money, and that would be that would be a, a better alternative to uh, the top priority of right now. All these lobbyists is destroying society. So I think making money, although that's sort of problematic, is better than the current situation. Yeah, um, and there's this idea um, of audience capture which I think uh, accurately describes what we're seeing with a lot of the media landscape. It's basically you, your content radicalizes as your base gets more and more radicalized. And that just leads to a positive feedback loop. It gets you to the question, like what came first, the radical media or the radical population? And the reality is they're both sort of feeding off of each other. One issue that I've had with recent independent media broadcasters. I'm a big fan of the the place that I used to go to was, I mean, and still go to, to an extent, is Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar, which I think provides pretty good balanced conservative and left-wing perspectives um, on the news. But the issue is that they are vulnerable to the very same things that the corporate media is vulnerable uh, to in terms of audience capture. They basically started off being like, look, we're a proud news organization that actually covers real news, not weird clickbaity stuff that nobody actually cares about, but stuff that, you know, is affecting people's day-to-day lives. And then now by the end, they are in a very similar place as a corporate media in the sense where they're basically covering culture war issues. And they're spending so much time talking about how oh, you see how unbiased we are? Like, you see how awesome we are? Look how bad the media is without actually talking about the the real news. 
Um, I, I wonder if, if that audience capture is an aspect that can be avoided, in your opinion. I think I think it it should be, and we should try to. I don't I don't think that it is something that we can avoid. I think that uh, the ind- you're correct in saying that the independent media is at risk of the same sort of things. What what killed um, corporate media, and I think that it's it's evident that some. Um, some news organizations and independent news organizations will fall down that hole. Um, I think we need to keep on trying because if we don't get an, a, a good media and a truthful independent media, we're not going to have a functioning society for much longer. Things are really, really bad. They're, they're bad. And we need to do everything possible. Keep trying. It doesn't matter if it fails one, two, three times. We need to keep on trying, keep going with independent media uh, because otherwise, otherwise we're going to lose, we're going to lose, um, we're going to lose hope for society and we might lose lives like that. It's serious. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, Paul. Uh, your perspective was really refreshing and I think we had a great chat. Yeah. Thank you. All right. It's time for the rant where Milda and I get to rant about a particular issue that has been bugging us lately. It doesn't have to be about the topic at hand. Milda, what are you taking a look at today? Yeah, so I'm going to take a look at today a pretty weird and niche problem, which might sound scary at first, but I swear it's going to be very relatable for every one of you. I'm going to talk about why is the decline of the family as like a dominant unit in society actually a good thing? And what inspired me to talk about this is three things. Firstly, a debate motion that we had because, haha, I'm in the world debate championship right now currently, as you see by my tired face. (laughs) Secondly, I read a book last year. It's called The Anti-Social Family by Michelle Barre and Mari McIntosh. So if you're interested in what I'm talking about here, you're really going to love that book. If you're interested about motherhood also for all of the girls, I know you've been loving my rants, so go read that book. And then thirdly, I'm interested in this topic because of politics. <laughs> Vishwa is laughing from me. Because at least in Lithuania, there's this thing called Shemu Marshas, the Family's March, which basically is a right-wing homophobic organization of families, of adults, <laughs> who basically say that family values are disrupting in society. We need to push out the gays and the queers and make families strong as it was 100 years ago. And I think that similar movements arise in other countries as well. So I want to explain why actually that's um, that's not true. And, and yeah, and we don't really need family as such a strong thing. Okay, so let me firstly talk about like where the whole unit of a family comes from and what it symbolizes, right? So the substance of the family, how it was created, it was inherently built on a hierarchy and on the subordination to roles by which it is defined. There are certain roles in a family, right? Without those, a family could not really exist uh, in the past. This looks like the father being conceptualized as like the primary provider for the family. This looks like the eldest son being subordinate to his father must be his successor and follow in his footsteps, etc., etc., right? 
And what's, and of course, in the Western world, these kind of roles have been washed away a bit. In other countries, a lot in the global South, these roles are still very prevalent. What's bad is that we cannot consent to being in a family and we have no agency to choose our family. We're just kind of pushed to having it. Um, and, and, and we're kind of actively trapped in the system, even if we don't want to be in it. What's bad is that even like the government, it incentivizes people to make families, to have children and to get married, even if people don't necessarily want to do that. This looks like married people getting tax benefits or being able to take out loans easier. This also looks like simple societal pressure and societal narratives that like portray women who are unmarried or over 30 as like spinsters and loners. That's what I talked about in my last episode, right? Or, for example, the fraudulent idea that you need to find one person in your life who is like your soulmate and who you will rely on for all of your emotional needs and issues. I think that is quite idiotic and that's not how human psychology works. You have to have friends until you die. You cannot rely on one person for all of your needs. So why is this then whole construct of the family bad? I think it forces your life to be a certain way and it ultimately takes away agency from the individual so what i'm talking about firstly for example ideas of unlimited love and care for parents being taught to be grateful for them when what for what you have received being so deeply enforced in this that it is not possible to say that i don't love my parent or or sibling and what is bad is that even in abusive families even in where children face domestic abuse or psychological abuse, they cannot say, I don't love my family. They still need to be grateful for it for some reason. And they are not so keen to ask help from outsiders because what happens in the family stays in the family, right? The, the famous saying. Secondly, is that most finances and like the ability to be the provider for the family is strictly entitled to the father usually, or at least to the parents, to the mother and the father. So you directly depend on the head of the family for like your sustenance. And this is unequal. And this, of course, entrenches a certain power imbalance in the family in which it is far more difficult for you to plan your life, to be independent and to make your own choices that were chosen by you. And then thirdly, of course, from the sort of hierarchy and patriarchal system that the family structured uh, is structured upon, certain gender norms can very often be instilled on children. For example, of course, if you still have that structure where the father is the bread maker, the kids are like the supportiveness, the mother is like the baby maker. Usually the father is the person who has the last word and which is like a unit of controlling. If you're born in a homophobic family as a queer person, you will be forced to hide your self-identity. All of these things, right? So all of these roles that make up a family and that like represent family values, quote unquote, it leads to individuals being traumatized for the rest of their lives uh, and having the severe sort of mental trauma from their childhoods, right? Making them insecure, making them lack self-esteem, making them have trust issues for other people. 
And of course, you might say, Milda, well, my family is okay. I feel pretty happy. I don't have trauma. And I say, that's fine. Me too. I'm very lucky here. But the majority of families out there are really dysfunctional. Think of how many people you know whose parents are divorced. Think of how many people you know who are minorities, uh, like queer people and whose parents don't really like that, don't really support that. They're still in the closet. Think of how many people, I don't know, do not traditionally fin fit in in like the heterosexual standards and have to deal with their conservative parents. All of this leads to certain hurdles and all of this comes from the patriarchal hierarchical structure of the family. So then you might say, okay, but what is the alternative? Well, I think that overall, as we normalize regretting your family, not liking some of your family members, accepting that, sharing those stories, as we normalize that, I think that's good. I think that gives the idea that not all families are good. We don't need to respect our family members just because we're bonded by blood. If they're horrible people, we don't care about them. And uh, that is why the decline of the family is normal. We should not be giving more benefits to people who are necessarily married or have kids. We should be prioritizing the individual, right? And then what I, what I kind of encourage people then to do, I guess, is to find safety in communities. Uh, because firstly, you can choose the communities that you like. So it gives you, you know, the agency that you don't have in a family. You cannot choose a family, but you can choose a community of people who you like, who you share your values with, who you have hobbies with, etc. Secondly, I feel like in a community is very easy to hold people accountable just because there's more people usually in a community than in a family. So everyone sort of knows what's going on. And there's not really one person that's in like a very powerful position and can control everyone and kind of be unaccounted for. And thirdly, I feel like communities are more egalitarian in nature, where every member is treated as equal, as worthy of talking, of making their own decisions, which of course ultimately leads to more self-esteem for those people and more love for yourself and for others, which seeks which makes you seek then your goals, which motivates you and etc. So that's it. Wow. Milda, this is certainly going to be one of your more controversial rants. Let me tell you that. Uh, this alternative to families is one of those things that's just so outside like my realm of thought, of things that had even entered my mind, that it's it's just a completely new idea to me. I just need to think about it. I guess my gut instinct is to you know, dislike it and say, hey, what's wrong with families? My family's fine. Um, I, I quite enjoy being in a family. I quite enjoy the idea of starting a family myself. But um, again, yeah, I need to give this more thought. Uh, my question for you uh, was this, was do you believe that there's sort of an inherent power structure within the family? Or do you think that this is sort of something that can be, like the, the family can be changed? Do you think that like, because of these problems of like the, you know, patriarchal power structures, imbalances of power, and like conservative uh, thought and things like that. Do you think that these are inherent to the family unit? Or do you think that there's something else? Do you think that like, why do you believe that this family unit is fundamentally broken, really? 
I think that what makes these traits in families is like the roles that family members play. If the ma man is like the the boss and the bread maker and the one who has the last word, I think this inherently signals the patriarchy and the hierarchy that we see in other places. Um, and I mean, yeah, this all goes out to like society, schools, businesses, whatever. If uh, boys are taught from from when they're very young by their father that they need to be strong, they don't need to show emotions, they need to control others to like be a man, that's what they're gonna do when they leave home, you know, and go live their lives. Same with girls, if they're gonna be told to sit down, look pretty, uh, do the dishes and not aspire to something so huge, they're gonna do that same thing. But what you, what you were talking about, about like uh, raising children and stuff, there's a, it's actually really interesting. Maybe in, in our countries, we're so like um, obsessed with the idea that my child, I take care of him, you, ha you know nothing better. But for example, in other countries like Cuba, I think, uh, I should do more research on this, but they have programs where they, base, where they grow children on a more community basis where it's like not one family, two parents, you know, taking care of their child forever, uh, all of the time, but it's like they share and, and they come together to raise children together. So, yeah. So I was reading um, something earlier that a friend had sent me about single parent households and how their rates of everything is so much worse. Uh, their outcomes are so much worse compared to families that have like, you know, two parents. Um, and again, like I, I haven't considered the community solutions idea. I'd, I'd be interested to see what the actual cases of that are. But it seems like societies everywhere have sort of like developed with this two fam two parent um, structure. And I was just sort of wondering what your musings were on that. Has the community model been approached as as a possible solution? Yeah, I I also read about the single parent households things. That's I feel like that's what the conservatives in the U.S. state state in the United States say about black families. That like oh look these black people it's their own fault because uh, the fathers leave the home or whatever that they're in poverty. But then again, I think that for a lot of these families, it's not that like one parent may be necessarily the problem, but it's that they're in poverty. And, and that's why they go to do drugs, to go to prison, to not to, you know, drop out of school, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, I don't know this is factual. So this is just a discussion. <laughs> so we talked about the family and now it's pretty interesting. What is Vishva going to talk about? I'm talking about cultural appropriation and how it is mostly a non-issue that is made up by angry white people that are inherent to defend us weak minorities. Those of you close to me may know that this is a topic that I'm quite passionate about. I may have talked with a friend or two, colleague or two. I've actually written a column about this in my previous job as a columnist for the French newspaper La Liberté. The thesis of my argument against cultural appropriation is this. It simply does not make sense as a concept and is inconsistent with human evolution. Let's talk about this. Before we talk about what cultural appropriation is, I think it's very important to clarify what it isn't, because this is a term that has been weaponized by the right for excusing racist behaviors. Cultural appropriation is not overt racism. For example, wearing blackface 
that's not cultural appropriation. You're just a racist. Dressing up in like a stereotype of some minority, a grossly exaggerated stereotype of some minority isn't cultural appropriation. That's also just racism. It's also not cultural appropriation when you're making a mockery or decoration of, of, of sacred symbols and, and practices. Uh, an important example of this is in Canada, wearing an indigenous headdress is not appropriate as a fashion choice because those are extremely sacred rituals and, and wearing a headdress is considered to be an extremely high honor within many Canadian indigenous communities. That's not something that you could just get to wear because it's cool. These are things that are extremely sacred to people. So copying those things, being racist, that's not what cultural appropriation is. That's just behavior that I believe to be racially objectionable. Cultural appropriation is this. It's basically the idea that, you know, something belongs to a culture. Let's say it's a certain food item. Let's say it's a certain way of designing clothing. It's when a member of one culture, uh, normally the like dominant culture in wherever, um, whichever country you are in, um, Again, I told you, it's normally used by white people here in Canada and America. So it's normally when a member of uh, the, white, uh, the white culture steals something from another, often minority culture. Um, to illustrate this, I'm, I, I think it's best to use some examples rather than me explaining and giving a big academic definition as to what cultural appropriation is. Um, famous examples of people that have been accused of cultural appropriation. Jamie Oliver put um, an item of Jamaican jerk chicken on the menu of one of his restaurants and served it with um, rice and peas, which is basically a Jamaican, a classic combo of a rice and beans dish and chicken. People accuse Jamie Oliver of cultural appropriation because he's stealing Jamaican culture and stealing their food, allegedly, their words, not mine. There's also this famous incident of um, an Asian man getting angry um, and, and saying the famous lines, my culture is not your prom dress, um, because he was offended where, because a girl um, wore a Chinese-inspired dress to her graduation uh, ceremony. I think that there is just a fundamental problem with this concept in its entirety. I don't think that cultural appropriation, which we often talk about as a bad thing, actually is a bad thing. I think it's completely natural and how cultures evolve. Um, I think it gets the assumption that cultures all around the world, for example, South Indian culture, North Indian culture, Canadian culture, American culture, British culture, French culture, that they've all evolved in isolation and basically have zero outside contact. This is just absolutely untrue from an evolutionary standpoint and an anthropological standpoint. Humans have been in contact and sharing culture for so long. It is literally one of the central ways in which we were able to communicate with other groups of people. For example, here's a famous incident of an alleged cultural appropriation that no one would actually call cultural appropriation. Marco Polo, the famous Italian explorer, went and visited um, China and he brought back the food item that we now call pasta. It was inspired based on Chinese noodles. Uh, the Chinese made it with rice and Marco Polo decided that the Italians are going to make it with wheat because that's what grows and is easily accessible in Italy. No one would call pasta an appropriation of Chinese culture, even though way back when 
it technically was. Marco Polo took something from China and brought it to Italy, made it his own, and boom, pasta. Yet no one calls making spaghetti culturally appropriating Chinese people. That would just be ridiculous. I think that cultural appropriation, far from being bad, is actually kind of awesome. Let me tell, let me tell you the story of the famous classic um, Western, I mean, uh, European, North American, uh, Indian dish known as vindaloo. You'll get this at pretty much every Indian restaurant that you go to outside of India. Vindaloo is one of those classic Indian meat dishes with a very hearty gravy and things like that. Well, the Indians actually stole that recipe from the Portuguese when the Portuguese were colonizing them. The Portuguese had a dish that's called, again, pardon me for my pronunciation, Vinha de Aljos, which the Indians basically were like, okay, Vinha kind of sounds like Vind, de Aljos, Daljos, I don't know how it's pronounced. They basically figured, look, let's call it Vindaloo. And they took that Portuguese dish and added some of their own Indian influence to it and made Vindaloo. The British, when they colonized India, brought that dish back to Britain. And the Brits significantly cut down on the spice and made it the famous British Vindaloo. Do you really want British people being stuck eating bangers and mash all day? Or would you like to have that they have some Vindaloo? I personally would rather that they have just a little bit of Vindaloo. Here's my second point as to why I think this concept itself is problematic. I just think that it just misconstrues people's intentions and makes them out to be rude when they actually aren't. They say that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. I personally, when I am cooking, I love making other cuisines food. It gives life variety, and I get to explore the diverse flavor palettes of other countries. Um, I can't, I just, I just can't, I just don't understand how someone looks at someone copying their culture, wearing, wearing similar inspired clothes, um, you know, uh, listening to the music of that culture. And I just can't imagine any real life, non-internet Twitter person getting mad about that. Isn't that so awesome? I personally love it when people ask me about Indian culture and, oh, how do I make this? How do I make that? I love it. Um, and I think that most people love it. I just think that when we say that people are appropriating a culture, it makes them out to be the sort of bad person or an evil person, when in reality, all they're doing is expressing their appreciation for that culture by their desire of partaking in it. And here's my last point as to why I think it's a problematic concept, is because it just fundamentally misunderstands the concept of culture. When you appropriate something that is akin to theft, that is saying, oh, Milda owned this, I'm going to appropriate it from her and I'm going to take it from her. In culture, that does not happen whatsoever. Just because someone else makes vindaloo doesn't mean that you can't have your own vindaloo. That just means that British people get to enjoy how awesome it is. It's not something that's a scarce resource. It's not something like, like a rock or a, or, or a precious stone or anything like that that'll be can be stolen and taken away and will never be yours again. No, it will still be yours. It still exists. You still get to enjoy it. You still get to love your culture. There's literally no harm done from cultural appropriation. Everyone just needs to chill out and accept how awesome it is that we have such a diverse variety of culture on this planet. Here, I'll conclude 
by being a mature person and talking about cases where I think that cultural appropriation accusations are legitimate. I just think it's legitimate when credit is not given. When people say that Elvis invented rock and roll, I think that's ridiculous. Elvis himself will say that he has taken inspiration from Chuck Berry and the blues legends of the past. I think that's obviously demeaning to a culture when you don't give them credit for an invention that was originally theirs. But I would say that most people do. Like most other minority-related issues, cultural appropriation is one of those things where white people care a lot more about it than actual minorities do. Indians love it when white people wear Indian clothing or ask how to make Indian food, because we see how much our culture is being admired and appreciated for its beauty. It's a beautiful thing, and it's so human, and one of the great things about living on a planet this diverse that we get to partake and share other people's culture. Milda, you and I love talking about our cultural differences and given how different our backgrounds are. I think that's incredible. Feel free to copy any of my cultural intricacies. Thank you, Vishwa. That was very interesting. I found out so much new information about like how different food was invented and how cultures shared it. So it was very fun to know about these things. What I wanted to get some uh, your your opinion on a bit more is like for example during Halloween when people love dressing up uh, with clothes from different cultures and they sort of sens sensationalize them and make them very costumey. What do you think about that? I think that's the problem. It's the sensational and, and, and costumey. When you're wearing someone else's culture as a costume, you're not treating them as a person. You're treating them as an artifact. Um, I think this is extremely different than if you choose to wear, um, for example, a nice silk shirt with you know Chinese-style embroidery on it. I think that's a completely different issue. Um, but I think the line is, is relatively clear. It's if it's genuinely an act of appreciation or whether it's an act of um, basically not treating the uh, dehumanization, uh, that's the word I was looking for, whether it's an act of dehumanization and mockery versus whether it's a genuine act of appreciation because you just appreciate the beauty that this other culture gives the world. Yeah, and when we were talking, I remembered a documentary that I watched. It was about cornrows and braids and how black women have been wearing it for forever uh, but when only when Kim Kardashian wore them to like the the big events and on social media they got pop pop popularized and they got like glamorized and it was uh, the beauty standard so once again what do you think about that yeah well I mean I think that points out some deeper issues within our society. I don't think the problem is Kim Kardashian doing something with her hair. I think it's the problem is our society refuses to acknowledge the fact that, you know, this is something that black women have been doing for a long time. I think that anyone should be able to do whatever they want with their hair. I don't think that this is, you know, necessarily Kim Kardashian's fault. I think that this is people projecting another anxiety that they have about societal problems onto someone that's a relatively easy target for that. I don't think that many people at the core have a problem with the fact that Kim wore corn cornrows, but they have a problem with the fact that other people have not been recognized or have been called unprofessional or called hurtful things because of wearing that hair. 
okay so that is it guys that is the end of episode five we hope you enjoyed it thank you so much for paul to for coming up on the show and having an interesting conversation with us uh if you have any suggestions for future episodes or any comments about this one make sure to leave them below yeah and we're nearing 200 followers on instagram uh which is great we're gonna do a little q a uh at that point in time so get us to 200 and you can ask us whatever question you want and yeah i'd like to reiterate my uh thanks to paul and uh calls for you to check us out on social media at wake up call podcast with underscores in between wake up call and podcast uh underscores between every word um and on tiktok at wake up call podcast with no underscores anyways I hope that you guys have a great next little bit, two weeks until we release our next show. And yeah, have a great day, everyone.